This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. How's everybody today? My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. We're right in the middle of a series called The Struggle is Real. The Struggle is Real. I don't know if y'all know The Struggle is Real. Do y'all know that? <laughs> Last week, we, we spent a few minutes as we opened up talking about some of the common struggles that we have. Really, I've, I've, we looked at social media and how we can use hashtags, and I think one of my favorite hashtags, it really is The Struggle is Real, where comically, a lot of times, we share on social media the things that, that we, we all struggle with. My, I shared a few tweets that I, I found that had that in that last week. My, again, my favorite one, I think, was that abs are made in the kitchen, but so are brownies. The struggle is real, right? I think that there are things that universally we as believers and followers in, 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 in Jesus, right? We, we struggle with some, some common things. And last week, you know, we looked at relationships because relationships really are kind of the core of where a lot of our struggles originate. We, we, we struggle with engaging relationships the way that God would have us to. Really actually giving our, our presence and our attention to them. Engaging people. We, we live in a, a world that has, has changed so much that we can be present but absent at the same time. And so uh, last week the challenge was to be present in our, in our relationships relationships, be engaged in those, and really specifically as parents with our kids. We're going to move on this week, and I think that the, the, the struggle that we're going to talk about really is highlighted in uh, one of the words of the year. I don't know if you know this, but the Oxford English Dictionary every year chooses a, um, a word of the year. It's not often a, a brand new word, but often it's a word that has maybe gained a new significance that year. Um, and so I, I thought it'd be fun to revisit some of those. The first word uh, of the year that I'm going to show you is 1992. The, the word of the year was not which doesn't seem like a brand new word. But if you, if you were around, you remember that during that, that wave of time, there was a wave of jokes that were called not jokes, right? And, and I asked my wife if she remembered those because she's a little bit younger than me. And, and, and so I asked her if she remembered not jokes. And she said, yeah, it would be like me looking at you and saying, hey, Kevin, it looks like you lost some weight. Not. <laughs> like, like, really? Like, you're funny. Not. Right? 1998, uh, the, the word of the year was e-this, so e-fax, email, e-communication, e-commerce, whatever you want, because as the interwebs started to gain um, some prominence in our culture, e- email became a, a very dominant form of communication there in the late 1990s. In 2000, the word of the year was Chad. Chad, we're not talking about anybody, anybody in the presence in the room, not talking about a name. Actually, you may remember in the election of 2000, presidential election, there's the hanging Chad incident, right? Where in, in Florida, they were actually counting the, the number of, of the, the pieces of paper that popped out of uh, voting ballots, right? And those were called Chad. So in 2000, the word of the year was Chad. In 2003, it was metrosexual, right? Just praying that the Lord delivered me and thanking God today that he delivered me from that word. Um, 
Um, metrosexual is just a guy who cares a lot about his appearance, dresses really nice. Um, so uh, in 2006, this is my favorite out of these, uh, is the word plutoed. Being plutoed means that you are part of a group, but they kicked you out, right? Because in 2006, we kicked, Pluto, Pluto got kicked out of the solar system, right? But I don't know if you know this, but we actually brought him back in. Right? And, and just a few weeks ago, we took a picture of him, which is pretty awesome. Right? So being Plutoed means to get kicked out. Um, 2009, the word of the year was tweet. Because some of y'all didn't know until about 2009 that you had a Twitter and you could play with your Twitter and tweet with your Twitter. That sounds horrible when you say it that way. It does. I understand that. But 2009, the word was tweet. In 2010, the word was app, a shortened version of the word application, right? And app is oftentimes something that we're talking about, an application that we use on a phone. And then in 2013, the word of the year was selfie. Selfie. Actually made the cover of Time magazine, if you read Time, right? The word selfie. So I thought maybe some of you didn't know what a selfie was. So I thought I'd give you a definition of selfie. This is their definition of selfie. Selfie is a, a noun, an informal noun. A photograph that one takes, you take, including oneself, typically taken with a smartphone and shared on social media. It's a photo that you take of yourself, maybe with your dog, Maybe with your breakfast, maybe at a nice place. Maybe you're taking a picture with the, the game going on in the background. It's a selfie. And right now, as of today, on Instagram, which is a popular social network where you can sell or share pictures with your friends, um, there are 400 million pictures that have been tagged as selfies. 400 million of them. It really kind of leads me to believe that we live in what I would call a selfie-centered world. A selfie-centered world. And really, I think this, in the spectrum of time and history, is quite a new phenomenon. So I'd like to take a moment and just talk about how that happens and really kind of give you some perspective on where we are today. And number one, in your notes, the first thing in your notes, community is at the center of human development. <coughs> community is at the center of human development. God creates life, creates Adam and Eve in his image. And obviously, you may know the story. They blow it. They get kicked out of the garden. God pronounces in Genesis 3 what the rabbis call the curses. Specifically, now everything that was easy is now going to be hard. You, I provided you with food, but now you're going to have to go find food. I gave you relationships, but now you're going to have to forge relationships. Everything that I gave you is now going to be hard. And if you look in the anthropology of the development of human civilization, one of the most important early developments is towns and cities. That humans congregated together. Community is at the center of human development. Number two, Community created a system of interdependence. And really, even in our little corner of the world, this idea is something that permeated our communities even a generation ago. That in a community, you'd have a, a farmer and a rancher. 
you'd have a blacksmith. And all of those people were dependent on each other. The, the rancher would ask the farmer, farmer, how, is, how are the crops going? How are they growing? And he was concerned about them because his crops would eventually be the crops that landed on his table. And the farmer was concerned about the rancher's holdings because eventually his cows would land on his table. There was a sense of community and interdependence. And I don't know about y'all, but I think we live remarkably independent lives that are ignorantly unaware of how dependent we are on each other. And it's important because number three, relationships are God's design to create spiritual growth. And community, community is fueled by relationships. You don't have community without having relationships. And the way that we relate to each other, well, it's just changed so much so quickly. I mean, you can't help but notice that technology has had an impact on that. Let's just rewind 35 years, and you think about this with me. When the phone rang 35 years ago, what did you do in the house? When the phone rang, you want to know what you did? You answered the phone. What a novel idea, right? You actually answered the phone. You want to know why you answered the phone? Because you didn't know who was there. You didn't know. And it might be for someone that you shared a party line with, and they, they, might, they might actually get to like listen on their conversation. Right? Some of y'all are old enough to know what I'm talking about. You picked up the phone. Well, what happens now? Now you know who's calling, don't you? Because you see it. And what do we do? We don't actually answer the phone. We click and send the phone to voicemail. And then we text them, hey, what's up? What can I do for you? Think about that. Just the, the notion of selfies is so different, isn't it? If you were around 35 years ago and you had a camera, can I just tell you, you didn't take pictures of yourself. You might have taken pictures of other people. Maybe the sunset. You know what was interesting about those pictures? You didn't know what they looked like when you took them. You just took them and you hoped it looked good. Unless you had a Polaroid and they had to sit there at that thing and shake that sucker for about 15 minutes. I mean, the notion of selfies is so different than, it, than just the culture that we lived in a generation ago. The idea that we would turn a camera on ourselves. I don't know if y'all are like me, but there was one day every school year that I hated. It's picture day. Y'all remember picture day? It's like, I think they should pass out Prozac to every kid on picture day. I mean, because I went in like mis mismatched clothes, two different shoes every day of the year except on picture day. And for some reason, I'd show up in a three-piece suit on picture day day. Mom's got me already, hair's combed. Don't mess it up. And then you get in there. I don't know if you remember this. If this was your experience. But you would get in there, and, and there, there, this was not digital photography. You got one shot at the picture that was going in the yearbook. And I think the photographers knew that too. And so they loved to play with you a little bit. And so for me, every year, I think it was like second grade through fifth grade, they would say something like this. Say girlfriend. You'd go, girlfriend. 
and they'd snap it right there. Right there. That's, this is what second grade looked like. Right there. I don't know if you remember that. Did they do that to you too? It's a pretty common experience. But now, what do we do? We, we take, take a selfie. Oh, no, I look fat in that one. Let's take another one. Oh, no, you can, you can see my mustache. I didn't bleach it. No, let's take another one, right? Keep taking. You got 15 pictures in. You're still trying to get the perfect picture because today we get to know people differently, don't we? 35 years ago, just one simple generation removed. Do you know how you got to know people 35 years ago? You talk to them. <laughs> you had a conversation. You might talk to their family. You might talk to their friends. But you got to know them by interacting with them. You know how we do it today? We check their Facebook. We look at their Instagram. We look at their Twitter account. If you got a blog, I go, read your blog. That's how we learn about people. And because that's how we learn about people, far too many of us have started filtering the me that we let in public. Brings us to number four, selfie-centered world. People now fear unfiltered communication. People fear unfiltered communication. There's a study released just a couple months ago dealing with teenagers and the way that teenagers deal with communication to each other. And in that study, they said that 50% of the teenagers that they interviewed said that a telephone call was a high-stress event. It was stressful to talk on the phone. As a matter of fact, they, they asked about different types of phone calls, and they found out that those 50% said that they routinely planned for a routine phone call, such as ordering a pizza. I thought that was stupid. When I, I, there's no way that's real. And so I have a few teenagers to help out at the office, you know, and, I, and so I asked them, I just said, hey, can you talk to me, is, is, do, you, do you get like really nervous when you have to talk on the phone? Uh, yeah, I really do. Like, I'm, I'm okay but talking to you right now, but if I had to answer the phone and talk to somebody, I feel really nervous about that. I said, so if you, if you go to call and order a pizza, what do you do? And, and this is what they I have to write everything down. Really? Because for our kids that are 15 or 16 or 17, their entire lives they've been afforded the opportunity to edit the person that other people get to know. This isn't a brand new problem either. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you that this problem is about as old as humanity. And I want you to see today that as that problem has resurfaced in a new way, that God in his wisdom has always had a plan for it. We may all struggle with living authentically, but God knew that that was going to be a struggle, and he's given us a way to overcome it. In Exodus 34, there's this moment. It's really actually a, a great moment in the, the story of Scripture. You, know, you may know this, but God tells the story of redemption through the Israelites, a, a group of people that, that he set aside for himself. 
And they were in slavery in Egypt, and God, through Moses, delivered them out of that slavery and took them through the parted Red Sea into the Promised Land. And right after that happened, God chose to meet with Moses and to give him what we call the law. Some of you call it the Ten Commandments. And as Moses was on top of the mountain meeting with God, below where the people were gathered, they made a false god, fashioned a statue out of gold. And as Moses was coming down the mountain, having just met with God himself, carrying the law, he saw what was happening and was so angry, threw the tablets down and broke them. And because of their rebellion, God did not let them go directly into the promised land. They actually wandered for years. But in Exodus 34, God meets with Moses on top of the mountain again. What a gracious God we serve. That even when we blow it, when we get it wrong, God gives us more opportunities to get it right. Isn't that good? And so God instructs Moses Make, make the tablets again like last time. Come up on top of the mountain and meet with me. So Moses does. He goes up on top and he bows before God. And, and as he encounters the full presence of God, he weeps and mourns and repents on behalf of the, the people. And God again writes the law down on the tablets. And this time Moses descends the mountain carrying the, the tablets. And as he gets close to the people, they see something different about him. Because of his proximity to the glory of the Lord, Moses' face is glowing. And so Moses speaks to the people. And then the scriptures record that he puts a veil over his face. And they, as, as you read through Exodus 34, there becomes this pattern of Moses goes up, encounters the presence of a God, descends the mountain with his face glowing, speaks to the people of God, then puts a veil over his face. Now, I've, I've heard that spoken on so many times. And instead of me trying to tell you what's going on, I decided today that we would just let the Bible itself tell us what's happening. Because in 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul, who is writing to a church that's struggling to live with its real identity, struggling to live in the freedom that God wants them to live in, he revisits this moment. I want you to see what God says to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> we, we being those of us who have made the choice to follow Jesus, those of us who have been redeemed by God, we are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. The Apostle Paul says he wasn't trying to hide it so that he wouldn't superimpose the glory of the Lord on them. Actually, what was happening is that the longer he was away from God, his face was dimming. And he didn't want to see people. And he didn't want to let people see the fact that the glory of the Lord was passing away on him. And so he would put a veil. So that people wouldn't see. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. You see those commandments that Moses walked down the mountain with. 
We're not supposed to lie or cheat or murder. We're supposed to honor our parents. We're never supposed to have a God other than God himself. Money's not supposed to be a God. A relationship's not supposed to be a God. See, those commandments were given to us not so that we could look at them and create a checklist, but so that we could look in our hearts and go, oh yeah, I've blown those. The law was given us, the book of Romans tells us, to prove the sinfulness of man. And in this moment, the Apostle Paul says, every time that law is written, every time it's read, every time someone tries to take up the mantle of, I can do this if I try hard enough. All that happens is a veil is put over their face. And see, some of you, you have edited the person that you want to be to the point that you've taken the things that you struggle with, the things that you're afraid of, the things that are hurtful, and you've edited them out of the things that you let people see in you. You think, really, maybe subconsciously, maybe it's actually something that you think. You think, I can get this right. I can get life right. I can do it. I can get this right. And when you think that, all that happens is you put a veil over your face. I love where the Apostle Paul goes as he continues to teach us, beginning in verse 15, even to this day. When Moses is read, when this law is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, when anyone turns to God, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is spirit let's let's look at that the apostle Paul is quite clear that most of us are wearing a veil there's something that is difficult for you something that you don't want the world to see, that you've hidden. So the question that I want you to think about right now is what's your veil? What's the veil that you're wearing? Maybe today the veil that you're wearing is a veil of pride. You actually maybe even think, you know, I think I've got it pretty much together. I think I've kind of got this figured out. You know, if I try hard enough, I think I can get it right. Maybe the veil that you're wearing today is not like that at all. It's really on the opposite end. Maybe it's insecurity. And you look at yourself and you don't see value or worth. And so you put on a veil to keep people at a distance because you're afraid they'll hurt you. You don't want them to see the vulnerabilities that you see. And maybe today just your veil is just simply fear. You're afraid of being hurt. You're afraid of being used. You're afraid of being vulnerable. 
just afraid. What's the veil you're wearing? Moses was wearing a veil of pride. He didn't want people to see that the glory of the Lord was passing away. And I want you to see a few things from God's Word today. Problems with living that way. The first thing that's in your notes today is the veil that first covers your face will eventually cover your heart as well. See, as the Apostle Paul opens this passage, he talks about the veil that Moses has worn over his face. And he says, and wherever the, the word of God is read, whenever the, the law of God is proclaimed, also that veil. Whenever someone thinks, if I can just kind of get all of those rules right, I can be right with God, that veil's over their face. But then he takes it to an interesting place in verse 15 where he says, now a veil covers their hearts. I want you to understand that if you live in such a way that denies yourself the ability to be vulnerable and authentic, the way that you behave is going to stop just being you protecting your image and it's going to eventually invade your heart as well. And that which was a veil is going to become a filter. And your heart, it's pretty important. It's so important. Look at what Proverbs 4 says about your heart. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow springs of life. You may have read that verse in different versions where it says, guard your heart at all costs. Because from your life or from your heart flows your life. See, the, the problem with having a filter over your face that eventually becomes a filter over your heart, the problem with that is that eventually you're going to start filtering out the life that God wants to give you. That which God intended to be free is no longer going to be free. It's going to be held back. And God wants your hearts to be free. You know, this is kind of a moment typically in our messages where I try to give you some practical guidance. This is where I would tell things like, you know what, if you really want to deal with this problem, you, you probably just need to be worried about the opinion that God has of your life instead of the opinions that other people have of your life. That's good advice. Okay, this is where I might come up with something nifty like, you know, social media-esque and say that you really don't need to be worried about who you're following online. You really need to be worried about who you're following in life, right? Again, that's good advice, but as I was preparing for this message, I think it's important for us to actually turn our, our hearts to God's Word and just say, God, this is a, a prevalent issue. So many of us struggle with being authentic and real. And I want you to understand why that's so important today. I want you to get this. Because in life, people will admire you for your strengths, okay? They will admire you for your strengths, but they will connect to you in your weaknesses. They will admire you for your strengths, but they will connect to you 
because of your weaknesses. You've experienced this before. You ever met that person that got on your nerves because they were so perfect? You ever met those people? Like you just leave and you're like, I can't even stand being around. They, like they've got everything together. It's annoying. Like I don't even want to be around. They make me feel bad about everything. Their house is clean. Kids are well behaved. Did you see their kids were wearing white shirts that had no stains on them at all? I don't know how that happens. How do they do that? I mean, their kids were eating queso. Like they had a two-year-old eating queso and didn't get on him. How do you do that, right? And then you get to know that family. She opens up and says, you know, I'm just I'm struggling. I've got a health issue that's going on. And I'm, you know, walking through a, a chronic illness. And the husband says, you know, I'm, I'm just struggling at work. I was making really good money. And now I feel like my bosses just want all my time. And it's that family that you thought was perfect opens up and you get to see their weaknesses. You start to connect with them. You don't leave going, oh, they're so perfect. You leave going, eh, not so bad. I can relate. People will admire your strengths, but they'll connect to you because of your weaknesses. And far too many of us are living a, a selfie kind of life. Y'all, you ever watched anyone take a selfie before? <coughs> you ever seen that happen? I... I got to experience this firsthand a few days ago at the gym. I know when you look at me, you think there's no way he goes to the gym. <laughs> but I do occasionally. This is not for lack of effort. It's really for excess of cupcakes. That's really what, what this is about right now. So um, I, I walked into, into the locker room at the gym, and there are only two guys in the locker room. And there's one of those guys is in there all the time. I don't know if you, if you go to the gym and have seen this, but the old naked guy was in the gym. I, there's, always, there's always an old naked guy in the gym. I think they take shifts. There's like seven or eight of them, and they just call in, they call in in the morning. Um, when are you going in? I'm going at 9. I'm going to stay there till 11. You come in at 11? Yeah, okay. All right. He's just in there in shifts, just sitting there watching TV, old naked guy, right? And then there's this guy in front. I'm guessing he's post-workout, right? Shirt off in front of the mirror with his phone. <laughs> he looks at his phone. That's not, no, no. And I go, I'm, I'm just coming in. I see this guy going at it, and there's an old naked guy. I don't want to talk to him. Um, so I go get my shower, and, and I come out, and God's still there. No, it's no good, right? That, that's crazy. And all too often, that's how many of us are living. I love what Dave Ramsey says about our, our stuff and our lives. He says, far too often, we spend way too much money on stuff to try to impress people we don't even like. I mean, we're trying to edit our lives and present ourselves in such a way that we impress people. And people might be impressed by your strengths, but they will connect to you through your weaknesses. And if we're going to live authentically, there's only one real way to take that mask off, to remove the veil, and we find that in here. Number two, only Christ can remove the veil. Only Christ can remove the veil. 
You see, all of the effort and work that you put into it can never achieve what Jesus has already achieved for you. In verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes that if anyone turns to the Lord, if anyone turns to the Lord, he removes the veil. And the truth is, is that many of us in this room today need to turn our eyes to Jesus. We need to affix our attention on him. And think about that word turn. What does that mean? That means that our lives naturally have an, a, a direction. They have a momentum. And we have to adjust that to turn our lives to the Lord, to turn our attention to him. But when we do that, when we focus on Jesus, he lifts the veil. In verse 17, he reveals to us what the issue is. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The issue is your freedom. The issue is whether you can, by God's grace, live in freedom. Because the only way that you can live in freedom is choosing to be the person that God made you to be. So we get ready to close. I want to give you one point of advice for us to live authentically, we have to stop looking to relationships to provide the things that only God can provide. When we look to our friends or to our spouse for validation and support, now they're going to give that and they should. But when we find our ultimate love in those places, you know what happens we start defending that relationship. And the way that we defend it is by trying to be good enough. So we start editing ourselves. You see, God accepts you as you are. He refuses to leave you there. He's not going to leave you the same, but he will accept you right now. With all your vulnerabilities, all your frailties, all your struggles, because he wants you to live in authentic freedom. That's what he paid the price for. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that we, together with unveiled faces, can contemplate the ever-increasing glory of the Lord. God, that we can come to you, give our lives to you, and you can lift that veil. God, thank you. So we ask you today to do that, God. Many of us in this room have been editing our lives in such a way that we've, God, we've not lived authentically. We haven't been vulnerable. and Some of us are, are really lacking the intimacy that you want us to have. And it's not just intimacy with others, but the intimacy that you want us to have with you. So God, we just want to, we want to embrace this moment. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to ask you a question today. The only way that veil can be lifted, the only way that your heart can be freed to live in the freedom of God, the only way that happens is if you turn to Jesus. Have you turned your life to Jesus? Have you looked to him? Have you said, God, I trust you with everything? Or are you still trying to do it on your own? Are you still trying to impress everyone?
Because maybe today's the day that you turn to him. If you're here today and you say, that's me, I want to I turn to Jesus. I'm, I'm tired of running. Raise your hand right now if that's you. I'm tired of running. I'm going to turn to Jesus. Who else? A ton of hands. Awesome. God, thank you for those people. So God, thank you for those people who've made that decision. God, the, the decision to turn to you, to stop running, to be authentic. God, to embrace their weaknesses, but God, we know that where we're weak, you're strong. And so come and be with them. Remove the veil. Lift the filter on their heart. Free them to live in the freedom that only comes from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.